Pushkin. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Now is the time to bring new ideas to your industry. And T-Mobile for Business has the advanced 5G solutions to make that happen. We're helping rethink patient-doctor interactions with real-time data sharing. We're tracking carbon with 5G sensors to help fight climate change. We're partnering with cities to connect roadways, cars, and drivers to minimize injuries. Disruptive thinking deserves a disruptive partner. So let's get started on what's next for your business. Step up your innovation at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso, and thank you so much for being here today. This week on the podcast, we have singer-songwriter Brenton Wood. That's a name that I wish more of you knew, and I imagine most of you don't, because I have told many people uh, in the last couple of weeks that Brenton Wood's coming on the podcast, Brenton Wood's coming on the podcast, and I've sounded very enthusiastic, and it's because... Uh, the enthusiasm is real. Brenton Wood is a singer and songwriter. Wood is a staple in soul music, a songwriter whose love songs uh, can pretty much go unmatched. They're in the vein of something like Sam Cooke, who he was deeply inspired by. And his music has meant the world to me for many years. In fact, I think I discovered Wood uh, through his big song, Oogum Boogum, when it played in the background of a scene in Last Days of Disco, which I now, in retrospect, realize is like the whitest way possible to possibly learn about Brenton Wood through a Whit Stillman movie. But over time, though, I've really come to love his body of work. Listening to Brenton Wood's 18 Best, which is a compilation that came out in 1991, it's pretty remarkable to have 18 great songs. Okay, there's not 18 great songs, but there's like 10 great songs five really good ones and three that they just kind of threw in because they needed to put 18, which is kind of an amazingly odd number to put for a compilation. But um, there is a more traditional intro to give for him, but this is an untraditional interview. He's not promoting anything. He doesn't have a new album coming out. Most of you probably don't know who he is or you've danced to his music and any good party that you were at. 
but this is kind of why we do the show. Last week we had Philip Baker Hall on. Next week we're going to have Janixa Bravo on during our live show at South by Southwest. Yesterday I talked to Brenton Wood for an hour in his house in L.A. And um, there's not a real through line between those three people. I know that. I, I know there's not. The through line that I see, though, is not about vocation, but it's about greatness. Each week we have someone on who has something great and brilliant and beautiful about him. And for a long time, the thing that makes Brenton Wood, whose real name, by the way, is not Brenton Wood, but uh, Alfred Jesse Smith, born in 1941, Louisiana. For a long time, the thing that made him great, his beautiful voice, was abused and misused and unrecognized. In fact, it still is. He owns almost none of the rights to his music. Imagine putting all of your art and pain and joy and beauty into a song, into the lyrics of a song, and then have that song like Oogum Boogum and Give Me a Little Sign and more make millions of dollars for the company that you worked for. And then imagine a world in which that company says, no, we're not going to pay you. You were 23 and signed a contract that you had no idea what you were doing. Imagine that. Imagine coming from a family with 11 kids whose dinner time was 6 o'clock and if you got there at 6.01, you didn't get food. Imagine that. Imagine the 70s come and your songs blow up even more and the companies make even more money and you still don't have any of it. Imagine spending your life, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and 2000s, touring with those same songs that you never made money off of and having to book your own shows. Imagine having to do that for 52 years. That is Brenton Wood. Now imagine after all that, trying to be happy, performing, dancing, and singing to the songs that you wrote, that you loved. Imagine still smiling when you wake up in the morning. Imagine still wanting to perform for your fans because they don't know what happened to your career, but they know they love that song. They know they feel love and happiness when they hear it. They know they feel good when it comes to the loudspeaker. That is Brendan Wood. I grew up on his music in part, and I fell in love with it in college. I did not know his story, but it's the story of many artists from the 50s and 60s and 70s who got used by knowing and conniving producers. People uninterested in the art, but very interested in profiting from the art. And most of all, completely uninterested in the artist. This is angrier than I usually like to start off anything in my life, but um, spending the afternoon with Brenton yesterday You know, you'd, I don't, you never know what you're going to get walking into these interviews. You don't know what it's like to talk to someone for an hour until you do it. But I was deeply moved by his story and his life and his perspective. His ability to find joy and refuge after all the terrible things that have happened in his career. And he doesn't want pity. He doesn't want any of it. I don't know. You can sit around for days figuring out reasons why not to be happy. It's not hard to do that. In fact, sometimes it's comfortably easy to do that. 
I don't know how Brendan has made life work for him. I don't know how he can he can still continue onward after all the unfair and unjust things that have happened in his career. But he does. He does. And um, this interview is only a snapshot of his life. Uh, but I'm I'm glad he got to share it on this show. And uh, I'm glad he let me come to his house and, and talk to him. Um, it was really one of my favorite episodes we've done on here. And I, I really hope you enjoy it. So here finally is Brendan Wood. Hey. All right. You have a good deep voice, don't you? Sometimes. Well, it, you, you, this is actually what I wanted to talk about right in the beginning is that you that can, deep f- voice. well, you can fluctuate. Yeah. Uh, that's why I use the scale that way. Uh huh. I had to, I hear the music that way. You know, it's like do re mi fa so. <laughs> when you when did you figure out that you had that super high pitch that register? Were you in the shower singing one day as a kid? I think I pretty much known I've had that all the while. I used to sing only in the natural, in the natural vocals. You know, like uh, in my low voice. Can you give an example of that? You know, me and you, we've been together a long time. And you know what? We can get a little old lightweight thing going if we really put our hearts to it. <laughs> and then I say, me and you. Yeah. Yeah. Then I take it to another level. Yeah. I, uh, what do you call them? Um, Levels, or you call it uh, octaves? The falsetto or something? Falsetto octaves. Right. Yeah, octaves. When you were you, when did you first start singing? Was it a, you were a teenager and people thought, "Oh my God, you have this high register that no one can get to." No, I never knew. I never knew about the high register. It must have been there all the time. I well, when I started, I was about seven years old. I was at the recreational center park. I was very in. Enthusiastic when I first heard a piano, because we didn't have radio. We had radio, but we didn't have television. Mm-hmm. So I was really interested in piano. So I went to the. I was at the park, and I this person on the stage used to play the piano. I was so interested in that piano that I just stood there and watched him as long as he stayed there. And when he'd get up, I'd go and practice what I saw him do. And then my hands were too small. I couldn't reach the octaves and stuff like that. So I just used, to get harmony, I used two fingers Mm. instead of the whole octave. And I got the harmony. So you'd practice piano at the Yeah, I taught myself how to play the piano Mm. when I was about seven, seven. Then when I was about 14, 15, I heard Frankie Lyman singing. 
why do fools fall in love? And I said, well, I can do that too. <laughs> so I practiced and I practiced and I did that too. Mm. I practiced to learn how to write songs a lot by listening to the radio station and listening to the subject matter mm. and what they were talking about and you know, why, why people pay a dollar to, to buy this. Why did he do this, all this stuff? Uh, I followed the trades, you know, Record World, Cashbox, and Billboard. And I used to follow the release of new releases. And the new releases, I would track them all the way till they got to the top of the charts. Mm. So I was selecting songs that I thought would become successful. So you were a student of box more, office. More or less, more or less. And you're 15 doing yeah. this. That's an early age to be looking at the numbers and but, seeing you know, what, what grows and what doesn't. I know what I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> Other kids were in high school dicking around. Right. I was, I was having a problem with that too, because I wanted to do that because I was a, we had a very poor family. Mm-hmm. And it was like 11 of us. What did your parents do? Well, my mother, before she, my father stayed somewhere like that, she worked at the fish cannery down in San Pedro. I used to make make money on the waterfront, right? selling newspapers and shining shoes and uh, selling, getting going across the ferry and getting fish, bringing it back and selling it to the restaurants. <laughs> I was, I did all of that. You were hustling early. Oh yeah. My father, he would. Um put money in the newspaper, not the cart, but you know the thing where you had to pay 10 cents and then it opened up and mm-hmm. you grabbed one newspaper? Right, right. Well, he would pay mm-hmm. and then he would take 50 newspapers. <laughs> I did that too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He would go to downtown Chicago and people would get off the train. Here you go. Newspaper, 20 cents, 20 cents, 20 cents. I did something like that. But what I would do, it, I would sell papers on the Sunday paper. And I would sell them, I had a great big, they'd give me a great big stack of papers. And I'd go out and I'd say, get your Sunday morning examiner paper. Were you singing? Huh? You were singing it? I wouldn't say, that's what I would say, that's how I would say it. Uh Everybody would, okay boy, give me one of those papers, you know. (laughs) And then when I got those papers and stuff like that, I sold them all. So I picked up the people's papers. Genius. Who had them dim- delivered. <laughs> <laughs> and I give them back to <laughs> Make a profit. Yeah. That's right. And back then, the money was so heavy. I'd be walking one side. You know. <laughs> <laughs> all that change on one yeah, side. Yeah. <laughs> all that change on you leaning to one side. And silver was so heavy, you know. <laughs> but everything, I mean, you got to look out for yourself, you know. Yeah. And you start, you know, like I did, you know, you have to think of all the angles and stuff like that. So You had eleven brothers and sisters. Yeah. Six boy uh, six girls and five boys. How does that work? Hey, it doesn't. I mean it works, but <laughs> your first response is it doesn't work. Okay. Well, well, you know, it's like you know, it's like uh, the hunger factor, you know. That's probably why I didn't do too well early. I mean I didn't know I was so bad until the I got to be older, and I got my school record. And I said, well, I wasn't that bad. 
attention disturbance, all this stuff. Don't participate. Don't do this. I didn't want, I was wondering why I was there. <laughs> I want to. I want to eat. We got. We got to the, to one of the schools down in San Pedro, and they started giving serving uh, lunches. And that was great, boy. I said, boy, I couldn't wait to get to school the next day <laughs> to get to get some of those lunches because those senoritas sure know how to cook. <laughs> so when you were at home, was it a thought on your mind that you guys weren't going to eat at night? Well, you know, if you came home, if, if dinner was at 6, if you got home at 6.01, there was nothing left. Too many kids. Well... You know, everybody, <laughs> this, for, this for sure. But that probably was my father, father's favorite pastime. Cooking? Eating, uh, having kids. Mm. Your father's favorite pastime was having kids? <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. I, because their salaries were so small, you know? Mm. I mean, he was like making like something like $40 a week. That's That's kind of rough, you know? So when I think about it. And I was wondering one day, I said, I wonder how they keep that salary down after all these generations, you know, and there's still salaries don't meet. And it's still like you're only making a dollar an hour, you know, and still uh, making $2 an hour, $3 an hour. I worked my way up to two fifty. Mm. Then I got a hit. What was your relationship like with your parents? It was good. I was, I was, um, Actually, the most thing I paid attention to was that I wanted to do something for my mother. That's basically what I really thought about doing. Pops, he would stay, he'd be gone, he wouldn't come back for two or three weeks at a time. You know, stuff like that. Where would he go? <laughs> Out the world to see all the girls and all that good stuff. It's it's a lure when you don't make very much money and you don't, and you have a big family, and you just have all these kids around and stuff like that. But um, surviving that makes you feel good. I didn't have, uh, I had a lot of fun growing up, though. I can't say I was worried about much, you know, because everybody took care of me. You know, in the neighborhood, everybody took good care of me. In fact, I used to play piano over the my friend's house, I would stay there six, seven hours a day just writing songs and playing the piano. Then I called girls up and I let them hear the, what I'm writing, <laughs> stuff like that. And they give me and they say, hey, finish that. So I finished it, mm-hmm. you know, finished them, you know. And basically the song that I read, was writing about was about my, the things that the girls were sending me, changes that they were sending me through. How do you mean? Well... It's a, uh, how a young man feels when he first thinks he's in love and he starts showing off and acting crazy around girls and stuff like that. Was that you? you know, yeah, more or less, you know, showing off and trying to be seen and doing things that hurt yourself <laughs> and hurt my knee and shit like that. But still, that didn't hurt. <laughs> That's young love. Yeah. You know, in a lot of my songs, I mean, like, you know, a song that I had called I'm the One Who Knows. He thinks of one girl. He wants to try to get a little thing going. Strange expressions on his face is showing. He gets an old rag and he shines his shoes. 
And patches the holes in his favorite suit I'm the one who knows I'm the one who really knows I used to have to wash my clothes every night because I didn't have but one pair of pants. <laughs> so I would wear them to school, come home, wash them, iron them. Look like new the next day. That's right. It, it worked, you know, until I started shining shoes down there on the waterfront, you know, the shining shoes on the waterfront. I mean, they put me in the school in San Pedro, which I think it was probably good for me, you know, but it taught me stuff more like working gardening, all that bullshit. I mean, vocation, mm. vocational type work. Uh. And I learned how to shine shoes, and I learned how to grow stuff, and I learned how to sew. I learned how to do a lot of things. You know, it made me a shirt. That was, all, that was really, it was fun. It was interesting. Not knowing that I wasn't learning very much. You know, like going through the other changes like that, but... Uh, the benefit of it is that I learned how to do that at an early stage of the game. And so at what age did you write the song and put it out into the world? I started writing songs in 1956, 57. You're, uh, you were paid to do it then? No. I just writing songs because I heard a young person on the radio sing like I... Ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh. And that Frankie Lyman stuff. Yeah. Why do fools fall in love? Why do fools fall in love? Why do That was such a great song. And you thought you could do it. And yeah. You did, and you did do it. I did. What's the first time someone else says, yep, you can do it, and here is money to do it? Mm. The first time I got money for it was <laughs> when it was way late because the record companies didn't pay me nothing, nothing, and I had this. I had three hits on the charts, and I said, "Where's my money, y'all?" Well, this is, the the album comes out. Ogun Bogun comes out yeah. in 1967. 66, 66, 66, yeah, 67. 66, 67. I recorded it in 66. Okay. And did they pay you up front? No. They didn't give me nothing up front. They gave you zero dollars to record I that. I went to school at Compton High School. And after school, I would take three transfers up to Hollywood and kick songs around with this... Uh, Actually, he was he was he was the one who seeked the deal, and Joe was the one who was the uh, ranger and stuff. Who, like. who are these people? How did you meet them? A newspaper ad. Uh, this friend of mine, though, I tell you, I, posed, I played piano with to their house six, seven hours a day. She f saw a news clipping that said, "Can you sing? Can you write song? Can you do all of that?" And I followed through, and then. Uh, Start showing them some of my songs, you know. And what songs are those? Give me a little sign. I think you got your fools mixed up. I like the way you love me. All these songs were back, you know. And, and I recorded them and uh, like the way you love me in 1960. 
Cause I like the way you love me Oh, yeah Every time you kiss me Thrills me from my head to feet And I tell myself Deep down inside there will be no one else for me Cause I like the way you I mean that's a great song. Mm. It's a fan. Th- on that first album mm. has like four great songs on it. Mm-hmm. That Oogum Boogum album. How old are you there? Sixty six. When I recorded those songs, I was twenty three. Twenty three. Yeah. Back in the day. Twenty three year old Brenton. But I was had been in the music business for like nine years. Each year I recorded for different record labels. Uh, we record four songs a year and have them placed on different labels. And he placed them on a few different labels. I was on a lot of labels before I got a hit. When I got the hit, I was getting ready to quit. Well, sorry, let's not skip ahead because I'm confused. Before 66, you were recording other stuff? Yeah. But none of it made it onto... Well, it it was placed on different labels where right. they got money for the production and mm. they didn't give me shit. So throughout all this, you're not getting paid? I didn't get anything. I don't even got, I got a hamburger. In all those sessions, you said before 1966, you had been doing it for eight, nine years. Yeah. You go into a studio. Mm-hmm. They say, sing a song. A rag song. And write a song. And, and then sing the, the song. And we record it. And they pay you nothing. Nothing. And I mean, how are you feeling about that? I mean, I, I get you. Now your... I feel shitty about it. But you know, I wanted to make a hit. Right. I wanted to know where the money came from. But as a teenager, did you think, this doesn't seem right? I mean, you're doing this labor and they're not paying well, you. You know, I wasn't a teenager when I got the hit, though. Well, I know that. I'm saying yeah. before the hit. Mm-hmm. When when they brought you into the studio, did mm-hmm. they promise you saying? Yeah, I was a I was I was a, I was a, I was a, it was three parties. I was the songwriter. Joe was the arranger, and Hal was the uh, negotiator. But when I got the hit, they kicked me out the door, and just said, "Well, we got what we want." When was the hit? 66. Boogum boogum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that took me six weeks to write that one. You know, I had to change that song uh, a few times because I didn't know what direction I wanted to take it until I noticed or paid attention to this changing of the of the attire. Mm-hmm. Bell bottoms, hot pants, mini skirts, and all that stuff. Yeah. I just combined them together. Yeah. And made the song, but it took me a long time to get the story complete. Then I had to simplify the words. And then I had to make it interesting. The song was an instant hit. I mean, the first time I played it, after I got a copy, went to the radio uh DJ went to the radio station and the DJ's in the mid window spinning records. Herman Griffin. And he I took it in and I let him ask him to play it for me. I just got out of the studio with it, I don't wanna hear it, I wanna hear it. You're twenty. You're twenty three, right here. Yeah. Then he he gave me a spin. Then the record shop filled up. Then I said, "Well, maybe I got a hit here, huh?" Then 
I took it to Wolfman Jack. Oh my! You know on the XERB. I know. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he played it, and they heard it in North Carolina mm. in about six or seven states. What did Wolfman say? He said it, he didn't have to say anything because after he played it in North Carolina. They thought I was saying something derogatory at the end of the song. Like, who got kaboo says the cockaboo says the cockaboo. Cast your speller on. Right. And they thought I was saying, Sakatabu says the cockaboo. That was the farthest thing from my mind. They thought you were just, saying, stick out the pussy? Yeah. What? Yeah. Who thought they that? They put it, the radio station. How did they get that? They that's, that's, put it on the radio and they had they must have had a quiz or something with it. Someone called in. Uh sir, it sounds like Brendan Wood is saying stick out the pussy. Yeah. That's insane. Hey, they put it on a slow speed and it's like, oh god, You put anything on a slow speed, you distort it, but it's yeah, okay. Sure. Everybody has their own rendition of what someone's saying in them. It means something different to everybody. Let them believe that. That's fine. See, that's what I said. But the song was a hit. Yeah. 20,000 records in one week in North Carolina. It's it's pretty much a perfect song. Mm-hmm. I mean, it starts with it's those so, keys. It's so clean. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's so clean that it's... <laughs> it's a great song. It's 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 that it it wakes you up. It does. It wakes you up. It's a great morning song. <coughs> right. It's one of the best morning songs mm-hmm. to just put on right when you wake that up. That one and give me those signs. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Those two songs. But let's not divert from this because it sold twenty thousand copies in one week. In one in week. In North Carolina. That's a hit. Mm-hmm. And but what, they banned it in Michigan. They banned, okay, let them ban it in Michigan. That's fine. Didn't hurt, but I mean, it could have helped. What was your deal with the label at that point? I was just a, a singer and a recording artist. That's all, and a songwriter. Did you have a percentage of copies sold? I should have had, but I never got them. At twenty three, mm-hmm. when that blows up, mm-hmm. are you making any money at all? Are they giving you anything? No. How are you living? They were giving me, I was working at Harvey Aluminum. I was overhead comp, uh, overhead crane operator. While this song is blowing And I up. was working on the job. I wrote the Oogum Boogum song. Mm. Did you go to the label once it blew up and said, hey. I asked him for some money. Oh, we were working on it, but we haven't got to it yet. I said, I'm the only one you got on the label. <laughs> I said, you know, but, you know, it's just like they didn't believe or didn't, or they, they just knew they had someone that didn't know anything about the business. They knew that. Right. And they just used it to their advantage. And, I mean, they even steal my songs. Like, I don't like that. But, you know, I wrote the songs, you know, and I said, well, 
I can't get the I can't get the songs. I mean, I can't give can't get nobody to help me try to get my my shit back. So I just said, well, what I'm going to do while I'm waiting is I'm going to go out and work the circuit and perform, perform, make money on tour. That's all I got to work with, right? So I went out and started working little clubs and stuff like that. You know, who was helping you back then? Who? Was anyone helping you back then? Mm-mm. You were in your twenties, booking a right. tour, booking my tours, making, finding out my audience. But you had no idea how to do that. Yeah, but this is the this is the what this is what I had to do when I started. I had to go out and autograph record shops, and do all this um, uh, work for. I mean, to let the people know that I was trying to be somebody or whatever. I had to go to promote the song. Then when I promoted it, you know, it was they was I was giving away the songs because they were pressing up and having me promote and give them away and sign them. Right. And charges to me. <laughs> so I ain't getting no money. But I you know, I gotta I gotta say that it was pretty 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 uh shrewd people. That I was dealing with, shrewd seems like a kind word for them. I'm saying it like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're being diplomatic. Yeah, I'm trying to laugh to keep from crying. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can do a bit of both on here. Oh yeah. Want. Well, I can't cry no more. I just got to depend more on myself to do what I got to do. I don't want them to take the hat, this this part or try to take the, my state side of the game. They took my writers. I mean, in my publishing and all that stuff. And I don't want them to take my bookings. Right. I keep that to myself. So in the late 60s, I mean, another album comes out mm-hmm. after Ogum Boogum. Maybe you got it. Yeah. 68. 68. This is what I'm saying. I was going and they kept me going into the studio and kept writing and then writing and putting songs in the kid can. And I told him I don't want to do that. When did you record Baby I Got It? Baby You Got It? Baby You Got It. 1967. In 1967, you record Baby You Got It. Mm-hmm. Well, 1967, I had I recorded Baby You Got It. Yeah, but that was a year after Ogum Boogum happened and right. blew up. Right. So when they said, come back and record another album, mm-hmm. did, was, was, there, got it. was there a part of you that thought, well, hey, you didn't fucking pay me for the first album? Didn't think about that until after I got there. That, cause I'm, I mean, they bought me a car. Oh, so they did buy, they did give they me stuff. six thousand dollars. They paid for the car, a nice car. Yeah, it was okay. Wasn't no good when I started driving it though, because it probably froze up because I was on the road trying to promote that shit. When I got back home, the damn car was all frozen up and wouldn't do shit. It's a brand new car. Did they buy you anything else? <laughs> a hamburger. He invited me over to his house one time. Who is he? Hal Wynn. Okay. He was the person that was leading me through the madness. He was my manager. Did he look after you? He sure did. He was robbed me. We went to Tokyo one time, and he, I won a, a Black Pearl. He even stole that. <laughs> he stole your Black Pearl? My Black Pearl. I won it in the Pearl Farm. 
What was your relationship with this guy? I mean, did well, he, he took me out of. I mean, I was with him since I was sixteen. And, and and going to high school, then after school, I'd go to Hollywood. And he presented himself as a sort of second uh, father right, to he you. Was going to, he we was, were going to make some money because he believed in me, and I believed in me. And we went from that point to the next step. We just started writing songs. Some a few songs that we he wrote helped me write. You know, some of the songs that don't seem really sound like me, but it is me because I twist it around to make it sound like me. Like what? Uh, Need Your Girl. We could be together alone at last, like in that dream we both had in the past. Can't you see us just sitting around the fireplace, sitting such an easy pace, watching while the snow falls down, Ain't nobody else around. Come on. Can't you dig it? Hmm. Well done, Bretton Wood. <laughs> it's a story. It's always believing telling stories and songs. You're good at that. Yeah. And uh, stories amuse me as I'm singing them. I get feedback from myself. You learned how to write songs when you fell in love, right? Right. I thought it was love. I've been in love a many times. <laughs> <laughs> when did you first fall in love? I think I was about nine, ten, nine or ten. Nine, ten years old. It's a little early for, yeah. for love. Yeah, I, mean, like I said, I used to hurt myself showing off. <laughs> when was the first time you, you think you really fell in love? Hmm. You know, hmm, I've, been, I've, been, I've been amused by these ladies, but I have I found out that it wasn't love. It was just more of a quaintly, uh let's get it on type thing. Lust. Yeah, lust. Yeah. Lust over love. Mm-hmm. Hal seemed to abuse your relationship. He was a conniving type person, but sneaky. He had a lot of, he was in with Delphi Records and then a lot of people over at Screen Gems. You know, I don't, want to, I don't want to call no names and stuff like that because these people are gangsters. And it's not though I'm not scared of gangsters. It's just that when I say something, I want to be sure what I'm talking about. I ain't going to be no Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, Donald <laughs> Trump. I'm anything that comes to my head. <laughs> and then try to back out of it. I say, man... He's talking, he's talking about the media's line. All they got to do is punch the button and you hear you saying the same shit they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever thought, you know, Brenton Wood reminds me a lot of Donald Trump. <laughs> no, 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 no. That shit, I wish I would have. At least it would've been, they would have been talking about he had some money. Because mm. I, I didn't have no money then. When you went on tour again after mm-hmm. Baby You Got It, mm-hmm. were you making any money on that tour? You know... These people sent me on a six-week tour around the country. Oh, so this one, this you didn't do it after 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 I got the hit, I had to follow up the hit. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a station wagon, and it was five of us, and we went from here to all across the country, Midwest and the far and it's the deep south. And we must have spent about six weeks. And it was the worst trip I ever had in my life. Why? What happened? Well, it was very nerve-wracking. 
I didn't get any sleep. My each gig was about 100, 200 miles away from each other. And you have to do all this traveling. You're not getting any rest. And you're going through the shit. Your ass itch. You're, oh, you go through so many changes. You need pee. You don't know why you're peeing so much. I said, what's going on? The only thing that would calm me down was Valium when I came home. Mm. You know, and I said, well, you know, I ain't gonna never let nobody do that to me again. <laughs> I see, I never I got sick on the stage and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was like, ah, damn. I didn't know this shit was this hard. I had never been on the stage before I got the hit. And I was out there, that threw me out there, and I went out there, boy, I don't, that shit never gave me a nervous breakdown almost. Good Lord. Now I tell you, that's where Michael was coming from. And that's where Whitney Houston was coming from. And every more, every person, I mean, the Doors, all these guys, Janis Joplin, all these people. I came up in that era. It's nerve-wracking, Sam. It's a bitch to try to do that kind of work. The human body wasn't built for it. That's why you hear some groups that really make it big, make the hit and get a hit. You don't hear nothing from them for about three or four, five years. And then come back and they make a tour. And they, and they lay off for three or four years and then come back and go make a tour. And they go pick up their money. But if you go out there and someone is booking you as you go and you think you're going home next week and they got you five more gigs on the way home, that's nerve-wracking. Then you got all these time zones you got to deal with. You know, Europe, I was in Europe five or six times. I was in Mexico City over there three times. I was Japan three times. Uh, I was all over the world. And I didn't know who the heck I was. It's nerve-wracking. Well, you were in your, you were 24, you were 25. Yeah, but it don't make no difference. If the body don't get rest, you No, what I'm saying is, of course you didn't know who you were. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were traveling around, you were disoriented. I used to take all kind of medications and stuff like that, like these lozenges and stuff like that, and lemons and all that stuff, thinking that shit is heaven. You did Valium. Yeah, and then Valium. But the only you, thing you that, didn't drink or smoke or anything. I smoke Kush, but uh, it was—it's very nerve-wracking game. You have to—you have to be able to control going out and singing. The only way you can do that is to get your rest. The only thing that helped me in this business when my throat got all tired and raspy, rest. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to have the lozenges. I didn't have to have that and all that stuff. All I needed was some rest. So that's where Michael was coming from, you know. And that's where Whitney was coming from, you know, trying to meet those obligations and booking me out of all over the world and stuff like that. Nobody can take that. Were you lonely on tour? Nope. Hell, I, 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 I I had a lot of, a few in doing, very, a lot of fun on the tour. Mm-hmm. I mean. Someone new every night? Mm-hmm. And five. Five people? Five ladies that I was dealing with back in the day. There, there were a specific five or five a night? These are in this club. We're in Mexico City. Okay. And they have 
Like, we did five shows a night. And they had showgirls, you know, like they do in Vegas and stuff like that. I had fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was also all kind of waiting and everything and the shit out of me. <laughs> Why do you think people kept taking advantage of you? No, these are the girls. No, I meant the, I, I know the girls fine. I'm very soft-spoken. I don't uh, create a lot of madness, but you know, when I do get pissed off, I'm pissed off, and I will speak up for myself. Uh, that's when that, with the uh, with the people that I deal with in the music industry. Ever since I've been in this business and this places where I go to play, nobody really wants to pay you for your services, but they will get it as cheap as they can or uh, what you know. So I go through the changes with these uh, venues and stuff like that, but. You one thing, I so much that I won't take. You see, because everybody's doing fundraisers. Then I said, ha ha, that's what I am, a fundraiser. <laughs> I can't raise funds for you and me without having something to eat along the way. So that's what they do. That's why I have to deal with them, you know. But then again, I basically base my uh, staying on my fans. I play to them. And they, in turn, give it back to me. They give me to their kids, and they do all that stuff like that. That's my society today. And they people, they do wonder where these kids learn my songs. Learn it from their parents. You know, and they, they, the parents passes it on to the next generation. It's been five generations since I've been doing that stuff, you know. So I say, that's appreciative. To me, I'm very successful, you know, but... Uh, to have the things that I deserve and can't seem to be able to get a hold on is my writership and my publishing. I just, I mean... The foundation of your art. Right. I get David, David Salas. He's helping me with that a lot. He's uh, very, very intellectual on the publishing and stuff like that and Series radio when they should be paying and uh, Spotify and all these people here. The people that bought my stuff from uh, Double Shot Records, they were assuming my whole being. You know, they were trying to get me to sell my stuff to them indirectly through other people and stuff like that. And I don't want to sell this shit. I'm trying to make some money on it. But I can't sell it to you. And making any money on it because you ain't paid y'all ain't paid me shit yet, and I know it's working out there because I'm out here keeping it alive. I know it's, I know what's going on with that, you know. But I gotta eat, sleep, and shit, so I got to be out here pushing. But then again, at the same time, I'd like to be paid for, you know, to give my own family some recognition instead of just giving. All of it to some shites and crooks up in the music business, you know. Everybody claims to be geniuses. <laughs> you ain't wrote shit. <laughs> well, we, you ever have to, have you ever heard of a, an artist, a uh, person say, wonder what ever happened to so and so and so and so? Yes, I've heard that before. That's what happened to him. They didn't pay them, so they had to go back and try to make a living. I only had my name to sell. 
So I took my name, and I said, well, if I got any, if I got anything on the ball, I should be able to pull it off. But if I ain't, well, they'll let me know. So I went to start going to booking club, taking the door, and they take the bar. What What is your life like? Because your second album comes out in 68, and the 70s and 80s, you don't put out another record. I'm on the road in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Exclusively. Yeah. Only that, and I started promoting concerts also. Mm-hmm. It's a promoting, I uh, started a record, uh, promotion company called uh, Pacific Concert Group, the one that does the big concerts around, oldie concerts around town now. Started, started, I started uh, that with Alan Beck, but... You reinvented yourself. Yeah, each time. I had to do that because I had to make a living. And I was getting these, I was getting the feedback from the fans and their kids were starting to come out. And they loved it. Yeah, you know, and it's part of, actually, it's part of their life because that's the way my fans were raised. I was raised with them. So. You were their age. You were 20. Right. Yeah, you know, but I used to hang around with, I used to hang around with blacks and Mexicans. I didn't just assume, I wouldn't, it's like Mexicans took good care of me, El Salvador and all, they took good care of me. I said, I don't know what you people are talking about when you're talking about Mexicans. I said, see, you look at, you watch them, and you can see what the heck's going on. I mean, you get these people that take care of each other, you know, raise fundraisers and stuff like that, and they help one another and do all that. Big hearts, you know, and I don't get that on the other side of the fence. You know, I see everybody's just saying everybody's against one another. What side of the fence is that? Oh, my side, the black side. Mm-hmm. On the brown side, I get that. On the black side, I don't get that. They um, they didn't support you? No, not back then they did. But when after the, after the song came off the charts, you got to have another hit. You, ever, you, you notice how James Brown was having a hit a month? Mm-hmm. That's the way it, was, it is in the R&B marketplace. You get one hit. If it doesn't cross over, you got to go back to the drawing board. Did you want to go back to the drawing board? I love writing songs. That was my favorite pastime. <laughs> I take subject matters and I make them and I build it, build around the subject. But I don't play the piano that much anymore. I don't even play it yet. It kind of killed my desire to want to do it as much as I used to do it. But when I want to get away from all the madness... I go to my piano. Is there another album in you? Oh yeah, I got plenty. I've got. I mean, I just my biggest thing right now is I'm trying to clear all that madness off the off the internet. All these bootleggers and all this stuff that's trying to. I mean, that's out there selling stuff on me without mm-hmm. you know no licenses and stuff like that for me. I'm trying to clean that up so I can put out new stuff. Last year, I tried to put out a new album, an EP. And along the way, I mentioned earlier that Bicycle Records bought my music from Art LeBeau, which had no right to it. And 
they use my name to go out and claim everything that I did. So I just trademarked my name and I beat them. But they were trying to trademark my name too. But I was first. When I found out that they were coming at trying to get my trademark, I got my certificate. <laughs> so I just one hop ahead of them, mm. you know. And I said, well, you know, I knew that these people were trying to take over me because I can't seem to do anything and they seem to be sitting on my shoulder with a thumb on me, something like that, you know. And I released my new stuff on my label, which is Mr. Wood Records. And I want to get this stuff out, you know, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm in communication with them thinking that they want to give me a promo, uh, production deal. But they just wanted me to build up on what they are, what they just bought. In other words, they didn't want to give me any money to use my name. They just wanted to have your approval. Have my approval. And, and they are because they were going to do what they wanted to do anyway. So I said, well, I'm thinking at the same time. You you sold he sold my music he didn't give me none of the money he got the music and you <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out <clears throat> when do I make some money it's been a long time coming but I'm glad that I'm able to tell these people that no you know if I can tell them no they say what well, he got he he got to be like all the rest of them Mm-mm. I'm cool like that <laughs> and so. I ain't got to do nothing you say. You just, if you want me to work with you, give me some money. Mm. Other than that, I got to get what I'm doing, and I'm worried about you hiring me for nothing. But I hire myself, you know, and I know my marketplace, and then I'm not going to give it up. What do you make of people who, uh, have you heard sampling of your music? You know what that mm-hmm. is? You've heard this? I didn't. I'm a, some of it is. Okay. I'm going to play you a song because we're going to mm-hmm. play a song. I would have called that junk. <laughs> I mean, I want somebody to put some money behind something like this, but the ear, today's ear, it's a little different. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that song? I like the song. I don't like that, what they did. What can I say? It's all about make money. Basically, that's what it is. But, uh, it's way away. Well, it's way away from what I would have done. Right. Yeah. I think they were using you as inspiration. Mm-hmm. Basically, that's it. Every one of them tell me that I inspire them. Do you have a lot of people, a lot of artists told you that you inspire them? A lot of my fans. A lot of my fans. The artists don't like me. Why is that? Well, I get a lot of attention when I'm out. You know, all the girls and everybody guys coming around around me, and they, you know, and they don't get that. Other artists don't get that. A lot of them don't get it. Mm-hmm. 
but they don't know how to do. They don't know what it entails, what it, what it, how good it is for them. Because in an old song, you have people have been listening to this song for years. One day they may want to meet you. They finally meet you 20, 30 years later. 20 or 30 years later. And that that's the part that really you have to pay attention to. I've been waiting 10 years to hear you. I've been waiting 10 years to touch you. All that, that's serious stuff. You got to take it serious about these fans with this music. It's not just a fad or a fluke. They are really serious. They sit in the audience, they cry. They do all kinds of things, you know. Uh, some of them get crazy when they do crazy stuff. But, you know, it's just it's part of life. It's just what that, that music does to them. So I have to take that serious. The musical part about that is I really have to appreciate the fans that I have. You know, because they don't have no limits. They give their all. Mm. And that's what I like. I get my satisfaction and my comforting from them. Is there a part of you when you're performing for them now and you've been performing these songs for decades, mm -hmm. is there a part of you that doesn't want to do Oogum Boogum anymore? Are you serious? I love that song. I don't know. <laughs> there are people who may... I, I don't know if Paul McCartney really wants to sing Hey Jude anymore. It made him money. Sure, it made him money. Why did he do it in the first place? Why did you do it in the first place? Because I wanted to be unhungry. <laughs> I wanted to make money. And that, that gave me an, an incentive to keep going. Nobody, a lot of people didn't encourage me to do what I do. I just, just this is the way I feel about things. And the, the the way I record song is not to accommodate the day's sound. I'm going to stay right there in the era when I was having all the fun and I was writing all the good song. Mm -hmm. So that's my era. I want to stay right there. I want to represent oldies. Era of love. Right. And then that's the beginning of it all, too. You know, and now, so even when I wrote Me and You, me and you was one of my, uh, that's my fourth song. They said, well, we got to have another hit, another hit. And I wrote the, the me and you thing, you know, and it's a laughing all the way through it. Mm. Because I was telling myself, if, if this catch on with the homies, is it, it'll become their alma mater. <laughs> and sure enough, it's the only way. It's the, they get them. They get girlfriends when they dance with the girl. Then they mimic my words. Mm -hmm. I've seen that. Yeah. I saw videos of you at a wedding mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. at parties. This mm -hmm. is you recently, mm -hmm. and um, I have to say, I watched it last week. Mm -hmm. 
and it made me really sad. Mm. And uh, you were singing, I'm the one who... Re-. I'm going to do it again. I can't get it with the high note. Um, Wait, don't worry about high note. Let's try. I'm the one who really knows. <laughs> yeah. And they weren't... Was this a little girl in a white... I don't know what it was. I have but to she had to see it with white long dress. I had to rewatch the video. Because I had, I mean, I was choked up inside singing that song. So <laughs> I think she, it, was a, it, was a, it was a burst of joy, but it was still, I messed up the song because I, I had to do a little bit of. That, you messing up the song did not, that, I don't think that's the video. And also, that's not what make me, made me sad. Mm. What bummed me out is that. These songs, to me, are some of the, the best pieces of music from that era. Mm-hmm. And these people, you were right there in front of them and you were performing and they, they weren't even paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. They were just talking. I mean, I know it's a wedding. I know they're having fun. But there's a part of me that thinks, my God, this is a living legend in front of you. Mm-hmm. Don't let this moment pass. Well, you know, I can't be everybody's favorite. I know, I know that. You know, and I, I, I look at it. I mean, see, I was the little girl. Was only, only seventeen years old. The one I was that wanted me at her wedding. I mean, I had Kinsinetta. I was a surprise for her. She didn't know I was coming. She came out crying. And I was so happy for her that I started choking up. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, so what, I have fun doing what I'm doing. It rejuvenates my soul. I'm glad. Mm-hmm. And as long as I can make my living with what I'm doing, I'm cool. I still would like to see how much money I could have made or would have made if them suckers would have paid. Mm. That's where. Is this how you imagine your life would turn out? Pretty much, pretty much so. It's hard for someone to make me really feel bad, but I get, I am pissed off about how people treated my publishing part of my business, what I'm in, but I can't. I, I'm trying to do something about it. I've done legwork, but you know, David and I, we've done some good research, and we found out that my name was forged on the papers that they sold the shit with it. <laughs> You know, but then my next step would be coming at them, you know, because before, like I was telling you earlier when we first started, they were, um, they had my music, Art DeBose sold his catalog to Bicycle Records. And and I'm, I'm still wondering, how did he sell my shit and didn't give me none of the money? What the heck's going on here? How come I can't get paid for the shit I made? All that stuff is involved in that, you know. But I have to, I have to keep going. So I have to stay strong about it. But I'm still working on it. When I found out that when I, I paid a thousand dollars to get that signature check, and it, and it was for, it is forged. But now my next step is to find a, a lawyer that don't belong to the labels hmm. to pursue what I need to do 
You know, and that's kind of hard because everybody in Hollywood knows each other, the lawyers and everybody, you know, and they are in cahoots with the label because they got the money and they disperse the money. And it's not in their interest to help you. Right. It's not in their interest to help me to do what I need to do. So I still have to make a living. So I'm doing okay. So you keep going. Yeah, I do okay. And my fans keep me going. They give me the, come on back, let's do it again. <laughs> they give me the encore. <laughs> well, here's the encore. Um, can I play you my favorite song of yours? Hey, you know me. I like all the stuff I finished. I've got a Got a great big 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 bundle of love, and I say that's that song. That's what I say in the in on the show. The great big big, great big big big. And they say, did he say big big dick dick? <laughs> <laughs> did he say that? Jesus. Well, they said I was saying suck out the pussy on Oogum Boogum. Yeah. So I say I don't want to try that. I, I wasn't even thinking along those lines. They're misreading. Yeah. A great big big big, a great big 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 bundle of love. A great big big big, I got a great big big dick. Bundle I love this song. This, this song is it's got a good young thing about it. You know that that It does not get old. Huh. It's, it does not get old. It's, it's one of the best songs you ever made. All my songs are hits. You, all you got to do is listen. <laughs> that's the punchline. <laughs> listen. That's, that's the punchline. Yeah. Brendan Wood, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sam, it's been my pleasure. It's such a great, you know, just to talk, real connect, recollecting this stuff, man. It goes back a long way. I say, damn, how the time flies. Well, there it is. Special thanks this week to David Salas for helping arrange this interview. You can listen to Brenton's music on every musical platform, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music. And be sure to keep an eye out for live shows. He performs sporadically across the country, and we'll include more info about that in our show notes. And lastly, a big thanks to Brenton for coming on the podcast and sharing part of his life with us. If you enjoyed today's episode of Talk Easy, there's a good chance you'll enjoy our past conversations with musicians like Esperanza Spalding, Mind Design, and Mac DeMarco. This is usually when I ask people who listen to the show to please possibly consider reviewing the show on iTunes, which, uh, yeah, you should do that. But mostly today I wanted to say thank you to those who do listen to this podcast, uh, because without them we definitely would not have been accepted into this year's South by Southwest uh, Festival. We're doing a live show down in Austin this Saturday uh, from 9.30 to 10.30 at the JW Marriott, the Brazos Room, where uh, one of my favorite filmmakers working today, Janixa Bravo, is going to come on stage and talk to us. 
And um, if you are in Austin, because you live in Texas, or uh, if you're coming down for the festival, please do reach out. My email is sam at talkeasypod. I will make sure you can get in and come to the show. It is free, uh, but there is limited seating. I would love to have anyone who has been listening to this podcast to please uh, come and see us do it live. Uh, We've never done it live before. I don't know why we're saying we. It's just going to be me. Uh, Nora is staying in New York. Maybe we'll Skype her in. I don't know. Look, it's going to be good, I think. I hope. And uh, Janixa is an incredible, incredible filmmaker and a wonderful speaker. And I think it's going to be a really good time. So please do reach out if you are going to be in Austin. As always, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app. If you want to drop me a line about anything, feel free to do so at sam at talkeasypod.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook at TalkEasyPod, as well as our website, www.talkeasypod.com. Our music this week is by Jinsang and Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Nora Knight. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you in Austin. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.